0: Hey, Door of Hope, I'm Pip, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad to be here speaking with you. We miss you. Uh, I have had the absolute pleasure of seeing some of you actually face-to-face. As some of you may know, we have been having some uh, in-person events with social distancing. so we've been having some Bible studies, uh, community groups are going, and those are taking place outdoors, and those have been those have been great. If you're interested in attending any of those, getting involved in a community group, uh, or for instance, there's actually daily prayer happening up on Mount Tabor every morning from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., just head to the Door of Hope uh, website, that's doorofhopepdx.org, and click on the little events uh, events button up there. There's also a community button, and there's a there's a banner too that you can you can see different things happening, click on. We would love to have you those things. It is so important to, to take all the opportunities we can for community to gather as the body, uh, especially in this time when we're not gathering the ways we normally do. So we miss you. We love you. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. Tim's going to be teaching from it. I'm just going to read from it right here and pray. And then Evan's going to lead us in a time of worship. So let me start here. Psalm 73, a Psalm of ASAP. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you that you are kind, that you care for us, Lord. I just thank you that in the midst of so many things going on, the coronavirus, uh, just political tensions, racial pain, so many things happening, all the the various things going on in our individual lives that ultimately only you know, Father. There is so much happening, but Lord, I just thank you that you are a rock and a refuge we can turn to, even when things in life seem painful and we wonder, wait, wait what's happening? Where is justice? Or why does it seem like the wicked flourish? Lord, your word gives us permission, one, to be honest about what we're feeling, but two, to look to you and to see who you are and that you are the God of justice and yet you are in control and that you love us. Lord, I just thank you for Jesus that you made a way for us to have a reconciled relationship with you. I just thank you for your kindness, and I just thank you for everybody listening right now. I just pray for blessing as they hear the worship music Evan's gonna play, as they hear Tim speaking, Lord. I just pray that your spirit would would move through all these things and would encourage our hearts. Lord, would uh, knit us closer to you and even Remind us that we are connected towards one another, Lord, even if people are listening to this just on their own in the, in the home. Uh, we are all part of the body of Christ together, everyone who, who has faith in you, Lord. So we thank you for that. I just thank you for everybody listening, Lord. We love them, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think it will come through. Okay. I don't
1: think. All right,
0: we'll see. Go for it. Uh, you want to start there Oh yeah, I do. Logic? Yeah, there it is. All
1: right. That's rolling. Red bars (laughs) is what I'm looking for. Two red bars? Two red bars, yeah. All right. All right. Try this one. Everything's rolling? Everything's rolling, yeah. in your deeds you are loving in your kindness that you've poured out Those who seek the throne of grace Find that throne in every place If we look to God in prayer Our God is present everywhere sickness, or our health, in our want, or in our wealth, if we look to God in prayer, our God is present. God is present everywhere. Our God is present. Our God is present. Our God is present everywhere. Bye.
2: Hi there, Door of Hope. This is Tim. It's uh, really good to be with you again. Uh, You may have seen me uh, teach last week. I'm I'm here again, giving Josh a a couple much-needed weeks off from teaching uh, so he can take a break. And we're going to get into the Psalms again here in in just a minute, but I have a, a quick announcement to make first. As most of you know, we have not been meeting as a church on Sundays for over five months. It was mid-March when we had to stop for a bit, and man, it's it's been quite a while. We're doing a lot of smaller things. I gave an update on a bunch of those things last week. There's information on our website. Uh, please check that out. Please watch your email. Please sign up for the newsletter if you haven't already, so you can stay in the loop. We know email isn't ideal and not really what Door of Hope was built for, but it's kind of the main thing that we have to communicate with now at this point, but as we move towards the fall, uh, a lot of the smaller gatherings we've been doing, we've been doing outside, and so we're starting to think about how to to bring them inside and what to do and what needs to be changed up for the fall, and we've decided to begin holding uh, a small service on Sunday mornings. Uh, We're gonna start it uh, Sunday morning in three weeks on September uh, the 20th. Uh, The current rules for Multnomah County allow us to gather up to 50, so we'll be able to have up to 50. We'll do sign-ups. It'll be something you'll need to register for. Masks will be required. Uh, We'll spread ourselves out. Uh, We'll keep track of everybody who comes to the service just in case somebody comes who's sick. It's gonna be a little weird, but it's also gonna be great. Uh, It's been so long long that even the weirdness I don't think will seem as weird because it'll be so good just to to be together uh, again at least with a with a small group and we'll start to uh, capture the the sermons like this um, at that gathering uh, to a, a small group, and then the sermon will start to come out uh, later in the day on Sunday. So uh, we'll have more details on that coming soon. Hope that you sign up for that. Hope to start seeing more of your faces more regularly. And then, as capacity and, and rules uh, allow for Multnomah County, we, we hope to slowly grow those gatherings and add more of them uh, over time throughout the fall and, and into the new year. So, again, more more details coming soon on that. So let me just pray, and then we'll transition into our teaching time. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for the opportunity to learn from your word. We thank you for how you teach us, how you reveal yourself to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our minds to hear what we need to hear and become what you want us to be. And Jesus, we just ask that you would show yourself Uh, through these words today even though they were written a long time before you're born we believe that that they point so clearly to you just just guide us in our time together in Psalm 73. Amen. Well we're kind of doing a a short two-week mini-series here in Psalms. Last week we were looking at, at Psalm 42, which finds the psalmist in a place of, of distress and depression. And we looked at this process uh, that the psalmist goes through of, of being honest about your suffering to God, of remembering God's faithfulness, and then preaching the good news of Jesus, the gospel, to ourselves to remind ourselves to hope in God. And this week we're going to be in Psalm 73, which it, 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 they really go very well together. If, if Psalm 42 kind of gives us some, some ideas of what to do with, with difficult times, Psalm 73, it's, it's, it's a story. It almost reads like a journal entry or a, or a testimony, and it, it functions almost like a, a case study of, of working out a lot of what we saw in Psalm 42 in, in the midst of a, a very specific a crisis, a struggle it is written by a guy named Asaph, who wrote a number of, of Psalms uh, across the whole book. Um, he was a priest, a, a worship leader of sorts uh, in Israel, and it, the only thing it says specifically about Asaph uh, in the Old Testament is that he he played the cymbals. So I don't know whether you call him a a symboler, a symbolist, but he 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 played the cymbals. And, and Asaph, he finds himself, like I just said, in in a crisis, and what we're going to see, even though his crisis is is roughly three thousand years old, I think it, it it connects incredibly closely to where we find ourselves today. In some ways, uh, nothing has changed with some of what. Asaph finds himself in the midst of in Psalm 73. Uh, I would say that that the issues he wrestles with maybe have have never been more of an issue than they are today, and especially in the midst of these times of pandemic and quarantine. So let's turn our attention to Psalm 73. Now, when you heard it read earlier by Pip, uh, you can probably notice it's definitely definitely still a, a very poetic psalm, but like I just said, it's it's also, you can see, it follows kind of a story arc, and that's how we're gonna look at it. You can look at it almost like like plot elements in a story. There's an intro, uh, there's a crisis that's revealed, there's escalating action, it comes to a climax, leads to this deep place of conviction for Asaph, and eventually uh, concludes with a, a resolution, kind of like a film. So let's dive in with that perspective in mind. And what we when we look at the beginning, of, of Psalm 73, uh, and I'll give you a hint, and this is a strategy you can use to look at, at a lot of different scripture, it, all, actually all kinds of writing outside the Bible as well. You look at the very beginning and you look at the end, the first verse and the last verse, and you can see a pattern that really begins and ends, Psalm 73, in, in the same place. Verse one says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Israel is, is God's Old Testament people, and he's saying, He's saying God is is truly good to his people. And the psalm ends in verse 28 with the statement, As for me, it is good to be near God. It kind of begins at the end, kind of like a, a Christopher Nolan film like Memento or Inception. It begins with the final scene and then kind of unfolds the story as, as to what happened in the middle that bring you to this this ending. And, and he gets to the heart of it immediately starting in verse 2. He starts with God's goodness, but there's a big but at the beginning of verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet almost My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And he explains why. For when I saw, for for I was envious, he says, sorry, in verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant. Envy is, is desiring what others have for yourself. He says he fell into this, this deep, dark place of envy to where his feet almost stumbled, he nearly slipped, and he, said, he says, when I saw the, the prosperity of the wicked. And there's an interesting thing going on here with this word prosperity. You wouldn't see this at face value, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I have some fancy Bible software that tells me this. And, and in this particular case, the word prosperity is a Hebrew word that some of you may have heard of, even if you don't know a lot about Hebrew, and that is shalom. It's a, it's a mega theme of the Old Testament, and the, word, the Hebrew word shalom is most often translated as peace. But what it means is, is not just our, our current understanding of peace, like the absence of conflict, it's, it's, about, it's about a place of, of total well-being, of, of success, of, of being fully satisfied, and, and, and generally free from, from conflict. And so what he says here, he describes his problem, because the, the Hebrew understanding was that, that shalom, God's shalom, God's perfect peace and well-being, that's for God's people, for those who are devoted to God. Like he says, who are, are pure in heart, he says. But when he looks around... At what's going on in the world around him, and, and he sees himself surrounded by by people he's going to categorize as as wicked—those who reject God, those who are in opposition to God. He sees them experiencing shalom instead of God's people, and he's wrestling with it. He says, "He says this is unjust. It's not supposed to work that way. People who who." completely deny you seem to be having all the shalom and God's people seem to be struggling. And it's not okay, that's what he's saying. And it brings him to this place of, of, of almost stumbling, he says, and he'll talk more about that. Well, what's he doing? What makes him, him feel this way? What is he doing that, that brings him to this point of, of envy? And I think the answer is simple, and this is what's so relatable to today. It's comparison, right? He he's looking at others. He's stacking up what he sees of their lives, which is always a, a small amount of it. It's, it's always the external way that people seem, and it's always a very limited perspective. But he's he's looking at that nonetheless and then comparing it to his own life, which he knows intimately and much more deeply. There's a there's a disparity there. And when he looks at this this brief vision of what he sees around him and how it's going for them, it seems go- like it's going way better for them than it is for him, and he's envious. See what I'm saying? Three thousand years, nothing has changed. He may well have said. He may just as well have said, "As I was, I was browsing through Instagram and Facebook, I noticed that." That people who deny God seem to be doing better and it's eating at me. That's the essence of what he's doing. We have different tools today, different ways that we go about comparison, but the heart is is exactly the same. And and I would argue that today, because of technology, it's never been easier to compare ourselves. It's never been more easy to see images, small images of of other people doing other things, other slices of their life, and compare it to what we know about ours. And it's never been more tempting to engage deeply and continually in that than this season that we find ourselves in now. Because, because I don't know anybody who would say this is the their, their favorite time in their whole life. Like, it's not going well for almost any of us, right? And so when we compare the just about any grass seems greener than the grass of our life and our personal circumstances, right? And this is sin. Envy is sin. It's unbelief. It's, it's a lack of faith. It's, it's not questioning in faith, trusting God. It's, it's looking around and saying, things are not good. And if you give in to it, as Asaph almost fully did, what it eventually comes to is the point of saying, you know, actually, God, I think you're in sin because you're not, you're not doing things the way you're supposed to do, and that's kind of where he goes. He, he makes his case next. He makes his case for, for God's injustice, for the, the, the disparity that he sees, and he gives this epic list, and I'm just going to hit the high points. He, he describes the wicked as he looks at them and, and, and how well it's going for them. He says they have no pain. He says they're fat, which in that day was seen differently than in our day, but in that day it was seen as a... As a a sign of prosperity. Those who had means and wealth uh, ate a lot and were bigger. And those who didn't have the means to do so were skinnier. And so he's he's saying, he's saying they have no pain by all outward appearances. They are prospering. They have no troubles in verse five. Verse six says they, they flaunt their pride. Seven talks about gluttonous appetites and foolish hearts Verses 8 and 9 talk about their heart towards God, that they scoff and malign and threaten. They speak against God while exalting themselves. And then what's really distressing to Asaph is, is in uh, verses 10 and 11, he seems to be saying, that the wording's a little challenging there, but he seems to be saying that, that it seems like God's people are being persuaded by all this. They're, they're seeing... That things seem to be going better for those that mock God than follow him. And they're starting to follow those who mock God rather than God himself in the midst of it. And his closing argument in verse 12 says, he, he summarizes it this way. He said, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. This is the wicked. They have no problems and they get richer every day. That's Asaph's perspective. It's a serious list. Raises the question, right? What's on our list? What's, what, what eats at us as we sit and scroll through our phone, through our newsfeed, through our Instagram, through our Facebook, through our Snapchat, maybe even your TikTok? I don't know if you do that or not. My kids do. One of them does at least. Anyway, uh, we, we won't go there, but but, but what, what what's on your list? What are you most prone to compare yourself to? Where do you see the most profound injustice that starts to kind of eat away at you? Is it economic? Is it power dynamics? Is it people in positions? Is it racial, which is a huge concern across the world and for sure in our country? Is it political? Oh man, it's an election year. That's all I'll say. Uh, there's no shortage of things that could be on our list. And this is what Asaph is doing. He, he So he he names his problem. He says, he says, look, as I'm looking around, things do not seem right. It seems unjust. Exhibit A. And he gives a laundry list of evidence for that. And what does it lead to? In verse 13, this is where it leads. This is, this is where it leads to in his heart. Verse 13, he says, he says, In vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He says, he says when I look at how it's going, for all those who mock God, what benefit has it been for me to try and follow him? To, to read his word, to try to live according to it. it I, I, I've tried, but if this, is, if this is how it turns out, I don't know what I'm doing here. It feels like it's all for nothing. The, it, it, the wicked are prospering in peace, while verse 14 he says... While while all the day long I have been stricken, which means afflicted and and plagued, and rebuked every morning, he doesn't say by who, but presumably the wicked that he's seeing prospering. So, So it's not just external, he's not just observing this from a distance, it's very personal to Asaph. He's not just seeing the wicked prosper from a distance, he's seeing that while he suffers, and while to some extent, He's being mocked by them while they prosper. And he's ready to throw in the towel. Verse 15, he says, again, it's, it's a little weird, the translation from the Hebrew. It's, uh, he says, if I, if I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It, it, it's hard to know exactly what this phrase means. He might be saying, if I had, had publicly condemned God, I would have betrayed his people, or maybe if I'd actually said this in my heart, I came right up to the point of saying it, but I didn't quite. Either way, he's right on the edge. He's right on the edge of doing nothing less than throwing in the towel on his faith, of saying, saying, when I see how this is going, if I'm honest, I'm not sure my faith has even been in the right place. I'm not sure this is worth it. Almost there but not quite and it's right at that edge on that slippery slope on that that tipping point where he's ready to walk away from faith something profound happens so so this is this is Asaph's crisis he does an amazing vivid job of describing it now we come to this 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 climax that's a turning point and, and we see it in in verse 16 and 17 he says but another big but that kind of signals a shift in the action of the story. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Uh, one, One way, a simple way to understand deeper shades of meaning in the scripture is to compare translations. All our English translations they're all, you know, translation on some level is an act of interpretation. And there's been lots of different translations from the, the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek mostly of the New Testament into English. And when you compare those, sometimes it reveals other shades of meaning. So when he says this uh, in the English Standard Version, the ESV, which I'm reading from, says it seemed to him a wearisome task. If you look at some of the other uh, translations, it says it was oppressive to me. When I, when I thought more about this and how to understand it, Another one, uh, the New International Version says, it troubled me deeply. It was troubling in my sight. The more he thinks about it, the more he dwells on this, the more troubling it becomes, the more exhausting it becomes, the more it's, it's oppressive to him, it says, until something significant happens. In verse 17, anxiety, trouble, gloom is growing until i went he says to the sanctuary of god and that's always in the old testament shorthand for the temple when i went to the temple when i experienced the the, the presence of god in the temple in the old testament uh, god's presence uh, was primarily seen and experienced in a particular place in a particular time in new testament times it happens through those, through the, the indwelling of, of God, the Holy Spirit. But, but in this but regardless, he's, he had some kind of profound experience. He doesn't say what it was. He doesn't say exactly. Some people speculate that, that he went to the temple and had like a supernatural vision. But I don't like that interpretation for this reason. It, it, it makes it sound like the only way out of these kind of circumstances is a supernatural vision where I don't think it actually takes that much. We don't know exactly what happened, but, but he simply encountered the presence of God. And we can encounter the presence of God in our day through Jesus, through the work and, the, like I said, the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about how we experience that presence um, uh, at the end of this time. But, but he, he encounters God's presence and he receives a, a totally fresh insight and a sense of, of wisdom. He experiences conviction. And it sets him off in a totally different direction. It says first, says he went to the sanctuary of God, and he says, then I discerned their end. The first thing he, he's convicted of by God is, is God tells him, hey, look, I'll, I'll give you a little glimpse. It may not seem like things are going how you think they should go, but... But ultimately, there will be a judgment. There will be justice. He says, he says the wicked might seem like they're prospering, but in verses 18, 19, and 20, he says, he says God has set them in slippery places. Eventually, they will fall to ruin. They'll be destroyed in a moment. They'll be swept away. He says when your judgment comes, they will pass away like phantoms. Meaning that all the images of, of success and wealth and power, and privilege, and prosperity that you might see in those who mock God, eventually, they will all pass away. Just simply evaporate into the ether. God says very clearly, justice will come. But it will be my justice, and it will be in my time. And Asaph is deeply convicted by this truth. And he confesses to God in verse 21 and 22. He says, when my, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a, a beast towards you, he says. He says, man, I got so wrapped up in this. I got so deep down this hole. There's a term that I came across for uh, spending too much time on your newsfeed and all the endless negative news that we find ourselves in the midst of in this time in our world in our country and it's doom scrolling love the term it's amazing he says he says when i the the more i obsessed on this the more i I, I sat in the midst of this I, i became like a an animal in my thinking i came right to the edge of denying your goodness and throwing in the towel on my faith god forgive me he says and then he affirms god's goodness And even if you may not be as familiar with the first part of this psalm, many of you might be familiar with this passage. It's it's a beautiful, poetic description of God's goodness. He says, Nevertheless, despite my sinful ignorance, my, my feelings of futility, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven? But you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Heaven, in this context and most contexts in in the Old Testament, doesn't mean like heaven where God is. It means sky. So he's saying, saying, Whom have I from the, the, the the highest heights of sky to the depths of the earth, and everywhere in between? There's nothing on earth in all creation I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He said, saying, God, I was about to slip. I was on a slippery slope, losing the footing of my faith. And you have become to me a, a rock, my, my sure foundation, my, my solid ground. You're my portion, means, means you are all I need. And then he concludes where he began, just kind of summarizing the whole thing. For behold, the last two verses, 27 and 28, for behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. Man, It's a, it's a powerful story. It's a relatable story. His, his honesty in how vivid his description is. It, it connects so deeply to me. I trust it's connecting to you as well. And there's a straight line from this story of Asaph to Jesus. And some of you are probably already going there. Jesus identifies deeply, most deeply, with Asaph's circumstances. Asaph, he, he felt like he was pure in heart. He felt like he was innocent before God. But Jesus alone in all human history is the only human being who was truly pure in heart and truly innocent. Therefore, no one has ever felt the tension that Asaph felt more deeply than Jesus. He was the ultimate righteous one and he experienced the ultimate suffering and he experienced the ultimate injustice. He was never more right. There's no one that was more right than Jesus more righteous than Jesus therefore when he was mistreated betrayed mocked and executed no one has ever been more deeply betrayed there's never been anything more unjust Jesus knows when we when we do this comparison thing when we struggle in this way Jesus knows how it feels he knows what it's like Asaph failed to truly and, and perfectly trust God he came around but he had to confess his sin Jesus shows us the example of, of perfect faith perfect trust even when God the father led him to even give up his own life and he asked questions he said father if there's any other way please don't make me go through with this on the cross he, he cried out to the father why have you forsaken me but he always maintained your will be done And after he asked, why have you forsaken me? His final words are, into your hands, I commit my spirit. But Jesus isn't just the ultimate example, he's more than that. Jesus didn't just give us an example of a better way to live, He, he died for all the ways that we couldn't measure up. He died for our and Asaph's bitterness and envy and comparison and unbelief. These things are sin. They they separate us from God. They poison our life. They rob us of joy. And Jesus died for exactly this kind of thing. For how it goes on in our own hearts. He died for how it went on in Asaph's heart. And it's only through his sacrifice that we can be, as Asaph says, continually with God. So so he's our example. He makes life with God possible through his death on earth on the cross for our sin on our behalf for our unbelief and he's the one that will actually make things right eventually jesus will be the ultimate judge everyone will die everyone will stand before him and those who live lives of pride and violence and mockery of god they will finally face true and ultimate justice so in light of all that i think there's four big lessons for us that I want to take a few moments to consider before we conclude our time. And the first is, is a lesson about justice. Now, I want to say at the outset, clearly, justice matters. Hear me in this. We live in a world full of injustice, and it grieves God, and it should grieve us deeply as followers of God. And there's all kinds of injustice in the world, but but the whole world right now is really thinking about and very aware of of, of racial injustice, right? Even just this last week, we saw more tragic shootings that captured the attention of of our whole country. And, And each time this happens, it inflames nagging wounds that are sitting beneath the surface of our society and our culture, and they, they're just they sit there festering and they, they are not healed. And every time something like that happens, it's it's like getting hit in a spot that's already sore, it's like scraping your knee when it was already scraped. It it, it, it brings it back, right? And in the midst of this, it, it's it's hard for me. I, I haven't had a chance to speak about this, but but it's hard for me sometimes to see right now my my fellow. Some, some Christian brothers and sisters who, who even debate the existence of this as an issue, who want to poke holes in, in, in issues like it, the question of, of is there such a thing as systems of racism or systemic racism? And I want to say very strongly and very clearly, and this is something we've spoken about as the elders of Door of Hope as well, that for Christians who believe in sin, there can be no doubt of the realities of systematic, systemic racism. Now, we can differ wildly and have lots of different opinions and perspectives on the extent of that, but, but all it takes for a system of sin, racism being one example of that, is two or more sinners getting together and making some rules the world is full of two or more sinners making rules to advantage themselves and disadvantage others. So in that sense, the world has been profoundly impacted in this way. And I don't want anything I'm about to say to diminish a a longing to right the wrongs of injustice, whether it comes to racism or any other injustice in the world. But the point I I have to make and the point that Psalm 73 makes and, and the point that the Scriptures make over and over and over again is that ultimate, final justice belongs to God. And the ultimate description of that is found at, at, at the very end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 20 and 21, it describes the scene where, where the dead, great and small, uh, come to uh, and are forced to, to give account for their lives before a great white throne of judgment and everyone it says the great and the small the powerful and the weak the privileged and the less so that they, they are all called to account before this white throne of judgment before god and those who belong to god continue in life with him eternally and those who rebelled against him and rejected him are cut off from life with Him and and His presence. And then it goes on to describe the the earth as we have known it passes away and and God's heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, comes down from the heavens and the sky and, and meets a transformed and renewed heaven and earth and God's people are perfectly with their Creator God for eternity forward from that point. And only then does God promise that He will wipe away every tear from every eye only then does he promise that death will be no more, that there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. Only God can remove the fatal infection of evil, sin, and death. Now, this does not mean that Christians are supposed to be fatalistic or indifferent, and just because ultimate judgment belongs to God, that we shouldn't care. It's not wrong to advocate, to protest, to work for change. That's good. As long as you continue to acknowledge that God has not promised that everything is going to get better through our efforts, that perfect justice will only come through his action and ultimately only comes through the return of Jesus. And in the meantime, Jesus himself taught us that things aren't necessarily going to get better. And so if our trust is more deeply in in cultural or societal change or progress than God's version of these things, we're going to be disappointed. Our faith can easily start to seem futile like Asaph. Just like he convicted Asaph, God says to us in the midst of this time, justice will come, but it will be my justice, and it will be in my time. He invites us to trust Him. So the first lesson is a a lesson on justice, that justice belongs to God. Secondly, just briefly, just beware of of comparison. I I would say uh, stop or avoid it or conquer it, but I think that's futile in a lot of ways because we're going to keep doing it. There's something deep in our hearts that draws us to compare ourselves to others. And like I said earlier, it's never been easier than in the age of Instagram, social media, multiplies opportunity and when you have something like instagram centered on these images it just it's crying out for us to compare ourselves with optimized lighting and photo retouching that creates bodies that don't exist in nature that makes houses yards and gardens impossibly attractive that makes other people's children look perfect and that makes every church seem better than the one you're at right now right I struggle with this in all kinds of ways. I'm a a very motivated guy. I want to put points on the board. It's about getting things done, which is both a strength and a weakness in my life. And this is why I I just can't do social media. It's not good for my soul. I used to embrace it wholeheartedly. I was part of a a church that embraced it wholeheartedly. And I saw how destructive it was. And for me, I I just can't do it. I've tried to reinsert myself a couple times, I just can't do it. But that's not my message. My message isn't that you have to stop social media, although it may be worth considering, (laughs) especially now, in this time, in this season. But whether you do or you don't, you have to watch your heart in the midst of it. There's a a deep ditch on either side of comparison. On one side is the ditch of of self-righteousness, where you start to fall into the prayer that Jesus describes in in the Gospel of Luke that that the Pharisees prayed, which is, Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these guys. That's the ditch on one side, and the other side is the the ditch of of condemnation where you look around and, and it's the crushing weight of feeling like you don't measure up, whether it's body image or parenthood or cooking or whatever. It's only Jesus who satisfies. So watch your heart and follow him. So judgment belongs to God. Beware of comparison. Seek God's presence is the third lesson I think we can learn. Like, like Asaph experienced in the sanctuary. For him in the Old Testament, it meant, meant going to a particular time and place. For us uh, who, who follow God uh, and, and have trusted in Jesus, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so seeking His presence is, is time with His Word. It's, it's time talking to Him in prayer. It's, it's confession like Asaph did. Being honest. Of our sin before him and honest with others. It's it's worship, it's praising him in prayer and and through song, and it's community, sharing this life with others. So seek God's presence. That's what's gonna ground us in the midst of all this. That's that's what how we practically push back against some of these traps of 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 taking justice into our own hands or 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 falling into these traps of, of comparison. And lastly. Psalm 73 teaches us to make God our greatest treasure. Everything in this world will pass away. And if God himself is not your greatest treasure, showing up to eternal life with him after everything else passes away might not seem like good news. If it doesn't sound like good news today, it shows, my life included, like that there's something misordered misplaced in our values in our in our hope psalm 73 challenges us to pray this prayer whom have i in heaven but you and there's nothing on earth that i desire besides you and and this season of pandemic and unrest is revealing our hopes and it's revealing them like i talked about last week it's revealing them by them failing us right Life reveals our misplaced hopes as they fail, and again, and again, and again. We're invited to come back to the gospel. What God has done for us, through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and eventual return of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that won't let us down. I want to invite you to trust in him most deeply today. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the words of Psalm 73. And we're all convicted by our comparisons. We're all convicted of our impatience that you would do things the way we think that you should do and it needs to be done yesterday. Help us to trust you. To trust that you are at work more deeply than we realize. To trust that that you are will have the final and true and ultimate and perfect justice father let all our misplaced hopes fail until we can pray with asaph whom have i in heaven but you and there's nothing on earth that i desire besides you my flesh and my heart may fail but god is the strength of my heart and my portion forever Amen.
1: just have begun all my burdens forgotten my crookedness is undone